has been recorded in the Mianan nation. We pay our respects to Jagra and Turbul people. We respect their continuing culture, contribution and connections to the land, water and communities. We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. My name is Akashika Mahula and I am in the spirit of spinning a yarn with CEO of Media Diversity Australia, Mariam Veste, an award-winning human rights advocate, lawyer, diversity and inclusion practitioner, contributing author and media commentator, whose journey through the digital waves of this episode speaks for itself. Mariam was most recently an executive director at the Diversity Council of Australia. She founded the Islamophobia Register Australia and has held multiple board roles with important functional institutions of Australia. Her captivating TEDx Sydney talk, advocating for greater cultural diversity, was featured as an anti-racism champion by the Australian Human Rights Commission and she currently sits on the Commission's Expert Advisory Group for the Workplace Cultural Diversity Tool, as well as their Multicultural Advisory Group. Mariam has worked as a radio commentator for the ABC Radio and as a columnist for Fairfax Media, with many accolades to her name, including the Fairfax Daily Life 2016 Woman of the Year, the 2015 Westpac Woman of Influence and welcoming Australia Life Member Award. In 2021, Mariam is renowned for influencing positive change both at workplace and in the society broadly. As a part of her team, in my role as the Asian Women Chapter Head for Queensland at Media Diversity Australia, I'm enthralled by the dynamic exchange on the challenges as a South Asian heritage woman of color fighting accents identity race pet to threat syndrome and the stairs to leading rooms which are many floors away that Mariam shares boldly how do some get to take the lifts we also talk about afghanistan within this year lots has happened in afghanistan in fact lots has been happening for a long time different governments regimes have come and gone the atrocities of taliban on women and children one of the reasons mariam with her family had to flee from afghanistan to salvage their lives talking about afghanistan i was also reading about indrajit singh's afghan hindus and sikhs afghanistan has many transitions of various governments and regimes over time often thought of afghan minorities the hindus the sikhs the hazras who have also been the natives of afghanistan for thousands of years with ancestry over hundreds of years have always been seen as outsiders similar is the story of agyas it's really cool to have mariam speak about how diaspora should not be treated as outsiders and how also not to take the diaspora for granted that once the diaspora settles like colonialism will remain silent and will not voice progress of the adopted democracy 
And this is why we have savored to bring to you a podcast series that spans beyond the traditional airways content. This year, 17 incredible Australian stories and also from the corridors of diplomacy with an accent breaking the thick curried ceiling. Mariam's great insights into intersectionality and how experiences of people of color play in daily life, especially in workplaces, how passive and aversive racism can occur even without explicit intent. Representation, cultural appropriation and the colorful canvas in media rooms, houses, corporates, critically questioning some of the representations in popular media giving useful insight into sometimes representation is just not enough. This episode is another celebration of the Australian stories of impact, of diversity, inclusion, and together with Mariam's vision for Media Diversity Australia with founders Antonio Latouf and Isabel Law. Wide Global Media and Advisory remains committed to forging a podcast series in the spirit of spinning yarns and the diaspora for a long time to come. But before we move forward, here is Mariam. Very well. So welcome to the In the Spirit of Spinning Yarns podcast and also the Diaspora podcast, Mariam. Such a delight to have this conversation with you. A beautiful yarn in a multicultural Australia. Congratulations to you on your recent appointment apart from many other accolades in the past, particularly for the CEO of Media Diversity Australia. How's it going for you so far? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's week three, so it's uh, it's still very early days. But look, I, I'm it's it's going really well. I'm I'm loving it. Um, it it's very much about taking an organisation that has already kicked amazing goals and hopefully taking that even further. So, um, yeah, so far it's been an amazing opportunity. Oh, that's brilliant, Mariam. And what have your priorities been uh, since you've been on seat? Yeah, I think, you know, in any new role, particularly sort of a big role like this, the priorities in that in that initial phase is really just getting your head around the issues. But of course, um, given that one of the key areas is about championing cultural diversity, and that's something that's so close to my heart. Um, I did a, you know, several years ago, I did a TEDx Sydney talk on precisely that topic. Um, a lot of the work I've done in the diversity inclusion space has been championing cultural diversity in particular. Of course, it's all diversity dimensions and diversity is, is intersectional. Um, uh, but yeah, I feel like I've been very well prepared to sort of jump into a role like this. And the priorities are really just um, 
continuing the amazing advocacy work of the founders of Media Diversity Australia, which are Antoinette Latouf and Isabel Lowe, and sort of building on that legacy. Um, but it, it also requires, you know, as, as part of a small organisation, it requires building that revenue base, uh, ensuring that that revenue is sustainable so that we can continue to operate into the future. So race matters. I mean, you grew up in Afghanistan and then you all had to move with your family to India and then from there to Czech and then Australia. Did race and identity play an important factor in your childhood and upbringing? And how have you come to terms with it all? I mean, you're the diversity and inclusion champion. Share with us some insights on that journey. A lot of people will say to you that race doesn't matter and that, you know, that we should look at the world and look at the people within it, you know, and take them at face value and that, you know, that people will say to you, they'll use phrases like, you know, I'm colorblind and I don't see, I don't see color or I don't see gender or I don't see forms of diversity and I just treat people as they are. But we know that that's not true. We know that, you know, because of the cognitive function of our brains, because of unconscious bias, because of conscious bias, the reality is that we um, we do uh, kind of categorize people by race almost instantaneously. And that is not something that's done consciously, it's done unconsciously. And there's pr- plenty of literature that, that kind of proves that. And there's lots of, you know, um, academic, you know, work that talks particularly like, say, the Harvard test that talks to this implicit association that all of us have. So the reality is race actually plays a role in how people are viewed, in how um you know, that they are approached and how their um, perspectives are and their contributions are analysed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it does play a role. And so with that in mind, I guess growing up, it's not something I was necessarily conscious of. I remember doing another interview and just having to reflect on my earlier years and kind of saying, well, you know, I never realised I was different until I think other people may have pointed it out to me. Um, And I think, I mean, there's little things that happen that remind you that you are different. Um, And I think having travelling from one country to another country after having sort of um, escaped war from Afghanistan and then, you know, settling in different other countries, several different other countries before then finally coming coming to Australia, um, it meant that... You know, I would be reminded in those new countries, I, I suppose, that I'm different because I'm coming in not knowing the language, having to sort of pick up that from scratch, you know, make new friends, pick up all the nuances. And plus, it's an, I'd be moving into a new house and a new home and a new country. And one of the memories that I do have, and I don't, frankly, I actually don't remember a lot, but the things I do remember is the fact that, you know, as a child, it's the things that are important to you, things that, like, say, your toys, right? And I remember having to give up my toys going from one country to another and me sort of asking my parents what happened to those Barbie dolls that I had or whatever it was that I was playing with. So just those are the things I sort of remember. But I guess specifically to your question on the issue of race, I don't think I was conscious of my difference until, until, a little bit older and um, when I did become conscious of that it it started through things like you know lunchboxes and what's in your lunchbox but I think when um, when my race was really brought home and um, made really obvious um, was I think when 9-11 happened um, and I was in high school as a teenager and I think that's when suddenly I had 
people around me, children around me, mind you, saying to me that um, that my country, you know, my country who five minutes ago nobody kind of knew much about and but could barely pronounce. I remember Morris in high school calling it Africanistan because he didn't know how to pronounce Afghanistan. And then after 9-11, overnight, um, you know, Afghanistan uh, reached a level of uh, prominence uh, for all the wrong reasons. And um, and I remember after that being very conscious of my race, being very conscious not just of my ethnicity but being very conscious of my faith background and how that was going to shape um, me going forward. And I'd say a lot of my advocacy, you know, a, a catalyst for that would have been 9-11 and the fact that we were so racialized off the back of that. And so, yes, race has always played a role um, and I've become a lot more conscious of it as I was growing up. How is it going for you today as an Australian with that ethnicity? I mean, of course, it must have taken enormous courage, perseverance, and um, I don't know what words will come out of my mouth, you know, just listening to your story, especially from those Barbie dolls you could never see. So please share <laughs> with us, how is it going for you today as an Australian? I feel incredibly um privileged to be able to call Australia my home. I say that, um, you know, I want to unpack that statement because often when migrants um, and, and those that are seeking asylum, when they're asked this question, of course there should be an assumption that there is a level of gratefulness for being afforded the opportunity to, to be able to live um, in a safe uh, place and to have to call Australia home. And in saying that, um, it doesn't, you know, I almost feel like I have to unpack that statement because it does not mean um, that you cannot sort of be critical of your home. It, it does not mean that therefore because you were granted asylum that you should just go, right, I'm, I've got nothing to say no matter what happens, no matter what difficulty I face. After that, I'm just going to be you know, I'm grateful and therefore I'll, I'll never say anything, I'll never scrutinise anything, I'll never criticise, uh, you know, government policy. And that's where people conflate these issues and assume that because you are an immigrant to this country that you should have nothing else to say beyond that. And, I, and, and I've often been reminded of that and I often then sort of remind people, well, actually, unless you're Indigenous, uh, we're all immigrants to this country. And so, um, you know, we should all be grateful. But equally, we should, because this is our home, we should be invested in wanting to make it the best that it can be. And that requires us to be sometimes critical. That requires us to have difficult conversations about how we can, as a country, as a nation, get better around race relations, which, I, I you know, my role at Media Diversity Australia is precisely that. It is about um, saying we've come an incredibly um, long way, but we still have a way to go. And, you know, how do we make sure we get better? So that's, uh, that's, you know, I suppose um, the approach that I take, and more broad, more broadly speaking, just in relation to your question, I yeah, I, I am very grateful to be in Australia. I think um, what it's afforded my family and I is an opportunity to get an education, and as we know, education is the greatest equaliser. Um, and I know, and recently I've had to reflect on this a lot because you know, three four months ago, Afghan uh, Afghanistan you know, uh, fell, Kabul fell to the Taliban and it's been absolute chaos since and I, ha I still have extended family members there and I've been doing a lot of advocacy. So it's become really um, 
obvious to me in the last couple of months in particular how my life could have been so incredibly different if I wasn't in Australia, if I hadn't been granted, if my family and I hadn't been granted asylum, what our futures could hold and the level of uncertainty and and even to the point that I've said um, I don't know whether I would be alive. Um, I don't know what my future would hold if I was alive. Um, what kind of alternative future would I have had if I was growing up in Afghanistan as opposed to in Australia? And what opportunities would I have missed out on? And I would not be the person that I am today. That is without a doubt. And so there's this great saying I came across that, um, you know, if you happen to be um uh, I think the saying was like, if you happen to be in a safer house and the one next to you is unsafe, you know, and they're knocking on your door, you have to open that door. You have to share. You have to allow, you know, your fellow human beings in. And the reality is um, if you happen to be the lucky person that that can call the safe house your home and the individuals that live next to you are in an unsafe house, um, you know, you didn't necessarily do anything to earn that. And I, what I'm trying to say is, is, is using that as an example to talk about, say, Australia and Afghanistan. Um, someone who was born in Australia didn't choose to be born in Australia. Someone who was born in Afghanistan didn't choose those circumstances. No one gave them an option at the beginning. No one rang them up while they were in their mother's room saying, which, which country would you like to be born into? What's the skin colour you'd like to choose? What, what gender would you like to choose? Nobody chose the circumstance of their birth. So when your neighbour does knock on your door asking for assistance and asking for help, I think there is an obligation um, for you to, to share your safe house. And, um, you know, I think in uh, in recent times with Kabul falling to the Taliban and the fact that so many people have sought asylum in Australia and none of those applications have been processed, it's really made me think about the fact that if we have the privilege of being in that safer house, what is our responsibility to open our door to others? Do you think Australia is safe? Yeah, I mean, I, I by comparison, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, the the privilege of living in a first world country. Um, yeah, I think when it comes to safety, generally speaking, yeah, there is a, a huge amount of safety in comparison to someone who, say, is born in Kabul and having to live in Kabul right now. What about the psychological safety? I mean, here we are talking about race, uh, diversity, etc. Do you think that we are far away from the inclusion factor that is still to be uh, executed in so many workplaces, media rooms, newsrooms? What, what are your thoughts? Great question. Psychological safety is very different um, to physical safety, as we know. And, and I'd say, no, there is still... You know, it's hard to answer that question because it's such a big question. It's like in the context, it depends on the context, but overwhelmingly we know that um, people of various diverse identities, um, you know, and, and there is data to back this up, will face less um, psychological safety, not necessarily, or, or, you know, while there isn't data to specifically talk to the issue of psychological safety more broadly, but we know that people of diverse backgrounds face additional barriers in the workplace, they face additional barriers in broader society, um, you know, there are all sorts of social issues, there's racism, there's xenophobia, there's homophobia, there's a whole host of things that most countries have to deal with, but we know specifically, given your question relates to Australia, that it is an issue here as well. And so um, psychological safety is 
a very broad concept that I don't think many people have mastered. Um, I think that if you think about it in the context of work, and so if you talk about it in, um, in the context of workplaces, I know navigating several different workplaces as a woman of colour, it's, I, I would say, I've found phases of psychological safety, but overwhelmingly um, in organisations for a while, you realise that you're not psychologically safe. There are definitely instances, including from micro, I can cite many examples where I've felt psychologically unsafe, where I've felt, um, I've, you know, most recently talked about this idea of this, this thing I've come across where you're initially seen as this concept of, you know, from pet to threat, and they talk about it in the context of diversity and inclusion and the fact that initially as a, as a woman of colour, you're brought into organisations as, as, you know, oh, we've as a culturally diverse talent and you, you're brought in and everyone's excited and kind of the, the, the concept is treating you like a pet, sort of patting you and saying how, you know, holding you up on a pedestal and saying how great is this that we have that diversity. And then eventually as your experience and your skill set and your influence grows, you're seen as a threat and hence the, the term from pet to threat. And um, recently I looked into this and realised this is a big phenomenon. Like there, there are so many people that have talked about experiencing this, particularly women of colour, but also um, no doubt men of colour, lots of diverse um, groups experience this thing. And, and that is where you are in an environment where you are the minority. And it, it means that sometimes because diversity is not really understood or nurtured, it's, it's kind of initially seen as approaches to diversity inclusion is seen as a bit tokenistic to begin with. And so this, we've still got a long way to go to be able to create that psychological safety, the same level of psychological safety for minority groups as exists for majority groups in Australia. Um, and that is about, you know, being able to nurture people's talents. Like if I, I was thinking recently about, and I will write a book about this one day, I've been approached many times to write a book and I just have frankly haven't had time, <laughs> um, but I've had had so many extraordinary things said to me throughout my career, including, you know, more recently that if I just write down some of the things that are said to me, it's baffling. Like I've, you know, and I'm now in a leadership position, but prior to getting here, I've been told things that I'm, I'm too nice as a leader. Um, you know, I've got really strong interpersonal skills that can be problematic. Uh, just I've, I've, the things that I've heard are just extraordinary when you think about the context in which they are said to me. Um, and the I know that my experiences are not unique. I know that lots of people, various minority backgrounds often face these things where people you know, broader organisations want diversity, but they don't know what to do with them. Um, they, you know, and it's about, on the one hand, you know, we've always said diversity is about not surrounding yourself with yes people. It's about not surrounding yourself with people that are exactly like you, that think like you, that act like you, that sound like you, that look like you. You need to, diversity of thought isn't just tokenistic. It's not just um physical it's also being open to different views different perspectives and noting that people's various diverse backgrounds is what brings those different views and different perspectives and just kind of nurturing an environment where everybody irrespective of who they are are able to feel that psychological safety but we know that that it's an issue and we certainly know that it's an issue in the media and speaking to stakeholders you know one thing that comes up quite a lot is whether it's in the media whether it's in the corporate sphere 
they always say we 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 always want to hire diverse candidates and we do hire them and then they don't stay there's an issue when it comes to retention and so the big focus for us at media diversity australia but and more broadly is about not just giving people jobs but giving them a career um and we hope that that's something you know that we're able to do so that we can work on the retention piece and it, it's not it, it's also about ensuring uh people of diverse backgrounds have careers that they're able to go on to have successful careers without having to compromise their psychological safety in order to do in order to have those careers i really enjoyed listening to your tedx video i mean trailblazer truly you are and uh, you're right women of color um i don't know why people think that they're like hot garam masalas but we indeed are i mean come on who can deal with the with the bad indian mother in law and uh, you know all those nuances we deal with in our childhood so god anyhow going back to the diversity piece we have a diversity our accents our colors and coriander curry leaves basil leaves whatever you call them we are familiar with those nuances yet we persevere keep pushing and we are here what do you think we have achieved so far and what is not changing in that diverse skill set within our media fraternity i mean we've got people in pr we've got uh, people in corporate communications we've got radio rooms newsrooms podcasts mm-hmm. digital media evolution it's massive please share with us some insights yeah i mean we know um overwhelmingly that australia is a diverse country we know that co- you know focusing on cultural diversity we know that there is um incredible cultural diversity the rich um you know a society made up of all parts of the world and what happens though is when you look at the data whether it's within the media or the corporate sphere is that whilst at an entry level that diversity um is basically you know it the diversity is there at an entry level it starts to drop off particularly cultural diversity starts to drop off as you move through the leadership ranks and so the data confirms that the um the data the the research that media diversity australia has done um who gets to tell australian stories paints a picture that shows that overwhelmingly those you know the faces reflected back on our television screens uh and and those that are you know pulling the strings behind the television screen so those in executive roles in in senior um editorial roles all of those decision key decision makers are overwhelmingly of an anglo-celtic background anglo-saxon background as are the faces that are on our television screens overwhelmingly except for networks like SBS for example which whose mandate is to actually ensure that it speaks to multicultural Australia so aside from that um we know overwhelmingly when you switch on your TV that um the faces reflected back at you are uh not truly reflective of broader Australia um we i think the data also shows that about roughly 6% of screen time on our screens is by people of a culturally and linguistically diverse background and of an indigenous background 6% so we know that television um in particular is um you know incredibly important to australian culture it's 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 you know it's a popular medium in which everybody gets their news their entertainment their everything right and and if you are switching on your screens and you are not seeing yourself or half the country is not seeing themselves reflected um 
then it really speaks, it, it, it has much more broader implications. If the only time that you see a person of an Indigenous background, for example, is on the news in relation to a negative news story, or the only time that you see, say, a someone of a Lebanese heritage, um, you're only seeing them on the news in relation to a particular news story, then you start to associate um, those ethnicities with negative um, connotations. And so we know it has broad implications. And so this is why diversity and ensuring that the media reflects the Australia that and its audience is so important and that we're just not there yet. And this is why we're talking about this. I would love to not talk about diversity. I would love to like, you know, I've got a skill set way, like I've got, you know, I keep reminding people, I can do other things as well. I don't want to just always talk about diversity because often the the resistance is, oh, you're always talking about diversity and you're always talking about identity politics and why don't you just say you're an Australian and not focus on the fact that you're also from Afghanistan or you're also female or you're this or that. And I say, well, I would love to not focus on that, but we're not there yet. We're at a stage where we know that our identities, unfortunately, um, mean that there are negative implications. So until we get to a point where the world views everybody for who they truly are and that things like their race and gender and ethnicity and faith background does not in any way have negative implications for their career progression or their contributions to society, um, then until we get to that point, then we need to have this conversation. We need to keep doing research that shows, that holds up a mirror to Australian society um, and that with a view to try and, you know, rectify that, with a view to try and create um, an equal playing field for everybody. Um, so that's why we need to continue the advocacy and continue doing this work. Talking generally about media and journalism, buzzing diversity for a moment, Independent media as a source of information for civil society stands out in many countries, particularly in Australia as well. Censorship, polarisation and declining revenues threaten the flow of information. Government leaders, international organisations, private entities need to develop strategies to protect media while still maintaining its independent. In saying that, how can governments and private entities create a safe place for journalists as well? I mean, we have uh, many foreign correspondents, international journalists, you know, they, they face both the rise of illiberal democracies and the risks of threat by free media. What are your thoughts? So, big question. Um I think to unpack that, I think there's a couple of things there. I think we can still work towards all of those things that you've talked about in terms of achieving and, and sustaining a free media, um, quality journalism, all of those things, right? Um, and still within that, um, ensure that we adopt strategies um, and organisational sort of um organisational strategies that creates an equal playing field, that creates opportunities for people of diverse minority groups um, as well. And I think it's also about the way that we view this. It should never be, diversity should never be viewed through a deficit lens. It should not be about, um, you know, by bringing on greater diversity. Maybe I'm uh, uh, sort of, you know, reading deeper into this question, but, like, I, I guess it's it should not be viewed as, by creating opportunities for, say, culturally diverse minority groups, that that somehow is going to have impl broader implications or that the 
quality of the work is going to drop or, you know, something, some kind of implication like that. The reality is in the corporate sphere, McKinsey and several other big organisations have done research that show that um, what happens is that when you foster an inclusive environment and then you allow that diversity to thrive, what happens is you increase productivity, you increase innovation, you increase robustness, right? And I suspect and, I, you know, love in the future for us to do more research um, around media specifically. We suspect that if you allow, you know, that diversity to flourish also in a media setting, that it will increase productivity, it will increase innovation, it will increase uh, the quality of the stories that are coming about, the insights that are coming through. I mean, I can give you a couple of examples um, from Wally Dali, who, you know, the host of the, the project, Network 10, who also uh, we have the privilege of having him sit on our advisory board for Media Diversity Australia. And he talks to some experiences of when those diverse voices are not in those decision-making seats, we as audiences sometimes are presented things, you know, he gives this example of pronunciation of a particular term, for example, and how because up until him saying to the editors, I think he spoke about this particular story, that actually this word is pronounced like this because I've rang my Indonesian colleague and asked him how it's properly pronounced and everybody said well no don't pronounce the word in that way because everyone in Australian media pronounces it this way so you have to continue pronouncing it this other way because otherwise no one will know what you're talking about and he uses that as an example to say that when you don't have cultural diversity in the media things like that can happen nobody might you know you might be incorrectly pronouncing say an Indonesian word and everybody will just say yeah that's just how you pronounce it and nobody would bother to challenge that and he uses that as a simple example to say you don't know what you don't know and you don't know what you're missing out on by not having those greater diverse insights at that decision making table and so we, we know in the corporate sphere um, that the quality increases not decreases when you have greater diversity provided you nurture that diversity provided you listen to the opinions of those individuals and not just take them as tokenistic you know appointments so in a roundabout way I know that was a big question I've probably only partly answered it but yeah I hope that makes sense definitely and that's exactly right so going back to you Mariam we want to know more about you tell us what does a typical day in your diary look like uh <laughs> Um, well, sorry to give you the example of today. It's definitely a, a, a running around um, constantly. And look, the other thing I, the point that I make and um, is, uh, and I've said this is, um, you know, being appointed to CEO position, um, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm a working mother. I have a eight-year-old and I have a four-year-old and, um, and so, and my husband um, is a deputy CEO of a committee for Sydney. And so between um, all of us, we're very busy. Um, and I guess for me, um, and I speak to this issue because I want to provide um, a living example for, for other people to kind of say, you know, because often women feel like they can't do multiple things. They, they feel like, oh, well, I can't put my hand up for that position because, you know, my, uh, you know, because of this reason or that reason. And so I like to share my story in that regard to kind of say, why not? 
Um, we have incredible talent. You know, there's research that talks to the experience of culturally diverse women, how they are ambitious, how they are innovative, how they are, um, you know, able to juggle multiple things, that they are able to bring bilingual insights, that they have a wealth of knowledge. Um, and so for me, a typical day is generally quite busy. Even in my previous job, it's 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 kind of nonstop. In saying that, though, it requires, um, I do, you know, I also spend a lot of time doing keynote speeches, presentations, um, speaking to other people. Um, this week, for example, some of the work that I also do is a lot of, I've been, because of what happened in Afghanistan, I've been doing a lot of ad advocacy. Um, so... Yeah, like, I, so, for example, on Friday I'll be um, mentoring a group of newly arrived women from Afghanistan. I'll be um, speaking to them about their experiences and sort of mentoring them and providing, you know, um, you know, so there's, so my my days can involve something like that or it can involve in dialing. There's days where, you know, you're in back-to-back -back Zooms or um, after this, for example, I'll be going in um, and doing a coffee catch-up with a Channel 7 journalist, um, and the meeting with stakeholders, say from Google. So, it, it, for me, there's a lots, lots of meeting and greeting different people, speaking to them about obviously uh, media diversity issues and diversity issues more broadly. Um, and a big part of what I also want to always do, no matter what my role is, is giving back. And that can be in the form of advocacy, or that can be in the form of mentoring young people. Um, I always say to people, um, think about who you needed when you were younger and try and be that person for someone else. Um, we get really busy in our lives and we forget that. And, and I think that is so important in so many ways. One, to give you an example with my own daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, I try and emphasise to her the importance of, you know, being a good human being, having, um, you know, the responsibility as a human being to, to give back, to help others. Um, and when she kind of, and, and getting her also to see the, you know, the life of her mother as a working mother. Um, I think that's important because we know I want her to grow up knowing that her mother and father contribute equally, that, you know, they will both, you know, cook the same amount. They will, um, they, that her uh, mother and father are also working, that they have demanding jobs, that, you know, that they're, they're doing lots of things and that there are so many aspects to their, their identities and to learn from that. Um, and so, yeah, so I know that's a really long-winded answer to your question but my days are often busy um and sometimes it's you know being at home with my sick child um and then at other and and also dialing into a call or doing a board meeting or doing an 8 p.m um, board meeting or advisory committee meeting um and then you know juggling and going from one meeting to going to the other room and putting my four-year-old to bed and then coming you know that's the nature of life and that for me that's a typical day it is juggling it is um you know doing lots of different things but for me I think I still have a good balance intellectually and and yeah I, I still feel like I'm able to do all those things and um yeah and I'm really happy to be able to do it who was your inspiration when you were growing up Mariam yeah um look I'd say um, there's probably multiple um, inspiration. There's two points I want to make. One is that um, in addition to, like, looking up to my mother as sort of a key inspiration, I also want to make the point that growing up, it was sometimes the lack of mentors 
that contributed to me wanting to get to where I am today, if that makes sense. So I remember, um, so whilst there's always been people that we can look up to, I also was very conscious of the fact that there weren't many people similar to me that I could look up to. So I say that as an example of, you know, um, media diversity. One of the things that I always um, notice very early on is that, you know, and, I, and I've talked about this in other interviews that I really, um, when I looked at television, for example, um, I remember watching Sandra Sully, Network 10 um, veteran news anchor um, on TV a lot. And I adored Sandra Sully and I, to the point that I wanted to be Sandra Sully and, but I'd look at her and I'd look at other channels, um, you know, the main commercial networks and, and I wouldn't see myself reflected. And so it's hard to kind of, I mean, that's just one example, but it's hard to have role models that you can look up to when you feel like you don't have a lot in common with those role models. So for me, the people that um, I could find were not that many. So I, I remember growing up and looking up to, for example, Randa Abdel Fattah, who I still very much look up to, and she was one of the only Middle Eastern Muslim you know, public profiles that I could come across that had been in the media, that had been successfully, you know, writing books. And I remember looking up to her and, like, trying to meet her, which I did eventually do. Um, but but also, you know, I didn't, there was certainly, um, there was a lack of uh, mentors of people similar to me. And that was something that I noticed. Um, but in terms of my going back to the, you know, to my mum in particular. Um, my mum is a fierce warrior in many ways. She's incredibly resilient. Um, she's, you know, uh, been able to have life thrown so much at her and she's been able to get through all of those and still come out the other end incredibly resilient, incredibly strong, incredibly brave. And I feel that I got my sense of social justice through her in particular. And um, so I, you know, she's been a major inspiration for me. She's always reminded me, you know, as annoying as sometimes as it is when your mum reminds you about these things, but, you know, it reminded me about being a good person, giving back to humanity. Um, you know, she's always, she used to say to me, look, I care about your academics, but the thing that I care about more is who you are as an individual, what kind of person you are are you a good person are you giving back are you a spiritual are you a good muslim these things are more important to me she would say than say whether you got an a on your essay um and that was really really motivational in the sense that it reminded me about um you know being good at your core as a human um is way more important than anything else and you can master the rest. You can you can ace your tests and you can do all those things academically. But the things that are not as easy to achieve is, is I guess, trying to ensure that you remember your, your humanity no matter where you are, no matter what the circumstances. And that's been an extraordinary thing that my mum has taught me. And so I very much look up to her as, 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 as a mentor. Mariam, 2022 is only a month away. Can you believe it? <laughs> what in <laughs> what what are what what are the advocacies and vision for 2022 you hold for life 
for Media Diversity Australia and all the things you plan to do. We've got a lot of things planned uh, for next year. Media Diversity Australia is growing, is continuing to expand, to grow. We are doing the next phase of our sort of um, famous research that we did, um, who, who, tells Australia, who gets to tell Australian stories. We're doing sort of part two of that, which we hope to launch next year. And that's going to be huge in that it's looking at how Australian media has, you know, how far it's come since we did that study uh, two years ago. And uh, so stay tuned for that. We hope to be able to, um, you know, hopefully that will make a splash in the media in the sense that it will provide the data point that we need to kind of shift the dial on this issue. We also, uh, Media Diversity Australia has a Queensland chapter. We have a Victorian chapter and a New South Wales chapter where we have a group of incredible media professionals and um journalists and um, uh, who are volunteering mostly their time. Um, we are hoping to build on that and, and introduce a Canberra chapter, which, we, which we'll do next year. So I'll be in Canberra um, speaking to lots of media professionals and journalists um, that can join us. We will also be launching um, our political fellowships, which is really exciting because we are, um, we've partnered with Google to <clears throat> basically um have three individuals that will, uh, young young journalists or media professionals that will be able to go to the press gallery in Canberra and, you know, sit within those organisations during the federal election next year and absorb what it's like to be a press gallery journalist and learn um, from, you know, from the senior uh, seasons journalists that that um, you know work in the press gallery and cover federal politics, and so that's an incredible opportunity that we know is not something that a lot of people can experience throughout their career. So there's amazing things that we're doing. We're also looking to expand our reach. We're looking for corporate partnerships. We're looking for organisations that we can partner with that, that really, truly believe um, in this cause and that can help grow our footprint. There is so much that we want to do. Our strategic objectives are enormous, but it's also about, you know, having the revenue base to be able to help do that and having the partnership and the support of, um, you know, me organization so there is a lot on the cards for us next year continuing to do our advocacy continuing to I suppose in many ways hold up a mirror to Australian society about what we're doing well and what we could be doing better and then uh, with a view to implement those changes and also to partner with organizations so it's not just about MDA saying to media organizations this is what you're lacking it's also about saying we know that these are the areas that we are lacking, but we can partner with you and help you improve that. So that's what, um, you know, we're really excited to be able to do and continue that work next year. Thanks, Mariam. It's been incredible speaking to you. And before we part, your message for our listeners, please. Um, I'd say, you know, for your listeners, I'd say don't wait to have skin in the game, so to speak. Um, in order for you to care about issues of diversity and inclusion. You don't need to be culturally diverse yourself in order to care about the fact that people of culturally diverse backgrounds face <clears throat> additional barriers or that, um, you know, that, that, that they don't get afforded the same opportunities. You shouldn't wait, <clears throat> uh, you know, to have a diverse identity. Just because you're not Indigenous yourself doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about the fact that the Indigenous population of Australia is facing so many hurdles and that there is such a long way to go so you shouldn't you know so it's for me it's just reiterating the you know 
let's care about these issues, even if they don't impact us, you know, directly um, and continue sort of planting those seeds and, and eventually that tree will grow. And while you might not directly benefit from, say, the fruit that that tree provides or the shade that that tree provides, others will. And that should be enough um, as, as, as human beings that, you know, that should be enough for us to, to want to do the right thing.